You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Kevin? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for making some time today to talk about squala fishing. You guys, I've been using some of your gear recently. I want to talk about that. It's been pretty awesome. And I just want to dig into a little bit on gear. You guys have waders and some great coats. And I want to talk about, um, you know, how you guys do it differently, because I think that there is a ton of gear out there and it's hard sometimes to understand, especially like with waders, right? Things that easily, even on this last trip I was on, I mean, literally on day one, I had a leak in my foot, right? So I want to talk about that, how we avoid maybe some of that stuff. But before we get into all your gear, let's talk about how you first got into fly fishing and we'll take it into Squala. Yeah. So my start in fly fishing, um, goes way back and it's a it's a story actually i love to tell people because it's uh, a little bit about recruitment and getting people into the sport so i had a lot of interest in fishing when i was a very little kid my dad did not uh but he took me to a trout unlimited barbecue when i was 10 years old actually on my 10th birthday date myself this was long long before river runs through it and kind of the boom of fly fishing but uh, uh i was just kind of fascinated i'd never seen anyone cast a fly rod i'd been you know spin fishing a little bit and uh, there was a guy there that did a casting demonstration and I think I was kind of mesmerized with it and watched it. He found this little kid who kept watching him and he spent about an hour with me, um, after he did his casting demonstration, teaching me how to cast a fly rod when I was 10. And on the way home from that event, my dad took me to the fly shop. That was, uh, kind of the only fly shop that was local to, uh, to our house, Eiler's fly shop, which is no longer, but, um, bought me my first fly rod and Tommy Eiler, who, who ran and owned that shop kind of mentored me all the way through my teens up until when I started guiding when I was 19. Wow. So this is pretty awesome. The trout unlimited. So that's interesting because your dad wasn't into it, but you really, where did the fishing bug, you know, was that just born into you? Like, where did that first come from? My earliest memory of fishing was me trying to catch sunfish with a safety pin and a piece of string <laughs> and bread. <laughs> wow. And I was pretty young then. Um, so yeah, I think I've always just been fascinated with um, with fish and outdoor stuff. I love to hunt as well, and kind of that that pursuit and figuring out what makes critters tick. It's always fascinated me. Perfect. Yeah, and we'll we'll probably talk a little about the hunting too as well because I do a little bit of that. And but Trout Unlimited, you know, there's a lot of great groups out there, and, and TU is definitely one of the big ones. And, and fly fishing, 
And uh, so that's that's a pretty good story, right? They, I mean, if it wasn't for that, you know, who knows? I mean, but you found a mentor, and, and that's really what it's all about, right? Finding that one person. That, is that, uh, you know, when you look at people that are getting into it, or at least you talked to, I'm sure, a lot of people that are customers, do you find a lot of people that are beginners uh, that are finding you, or do you find people like, who is that ideal customer for, for Squala? You know, for us, being a, kind of a premium, very performance-driven brand, our customer base is not really the newbie. We're more of people that are pretty advanced today, at least our customer base, given the type of product we make is, is more of the advanced guy, kind of looking for what's next, what can give them a better day on the water, really looking for that performance edge. And that's generally a more, you know, advanced fly fisher. Yeah. And I want to talk about that from the waders to the jackets and everything, but let's, uh, your background is interesting just in the outdoor apparel and, and, you know, your experience. So talk about that because I know, I don't know the whole history, but bring us back to first, how did you get into that part of the industry? And then who were some of those big brands that you, um, you worked for and helped really scale up? Yeah. So I kind of refer to it as like my first real job. So I was, I started guiding <laughs> when I was 19 and guided and managed a fly shop for a while. And then, um, when I was about 25, I went to work for Orbis, uh, in product development. And that's really the foundation of where I learned technical apparel and really learned product development process. Probably most importantly, I had some great mentors there. Jim LePage, uh, sat next to me who actually just retired a few years ago, but had a great career at Orbis and was the president of SA. And Jim taught me a lot of what I originally learned about you know, how to build great product and how to understand unmet needs in the market and create really great, great stuff. So that's kind of where I got my start and foundation, um, in the space. Um, and then went on from there with a few other premium brands, but really cut my teeth in technical apparel when we started up Sitka. So I was involved in the Sitka business from truly from day one. And I led that business for close to, close to a decade. And so from for me, for 2000, uh, end of 2007 through 2017, that's really where I spent my time really focusing on how do we build the best apparel for an intended end use. So really a deep understanding of the end use and then how do we solve those problems and give people a better experience in the field, on the water, et cetera. Right, right. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's the one for those that don't know, I'm sure a lot of people do because we have a lot of hunters that are also fly anglers, but yeah, I mean, Sitka is a huge, huge brand, and I don't know, you know, we'll probably talk a little more about some of that story there, but um, but essentially, yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a market leader, right? You think about some of the other outdoor brands, Sitka is, as far as the hunting, did you guys, when you were there, was it always hunting, or did did you start expanding out into other things? Did you ever think about, you know, fly fishing or angling, any of that stuff? Um, yeah, so Sitka was always hunting, and, um, you know, what we had learned with that brand as it grew um, and really got to know our consumers. Our consumer really viewed us as a hunting brand. And, you know, some of that really stemmed to the evolution of me going into, to start Squala. You know, we were looking at this, at the market and how people were innovating. We were seeing what we were able to do in the hunting space, um, with technology, textiles, different ways of looking at design and looked at the fly fishing space and said, you know, we really think there's an opportunity there to bring what all these things that we've learned over the last decade or so in the hunting space to bring that into the fishing space. And so that was really the, you know, original idea for this was to build a brand that would really push the limits of innovation from textiles, from design, from how we cut and fit our product 
which in some of the stuff I think you've been in, you might notice that yeah. there's a different way to get at product. Our fit's quite a bit different. We implement stretch in a, in a lot of a lot of places that's unique. It's more like clothing, right? I think of everything that it seems like what you have is really, it's not just a pair of baggy waders you're putting on. Everything fits. Like, how do you do that? How do you make it? Because everybody's different, small, large, big, right, skinny. How do you make that product that fits, you know, well for the diversity? Fit is a huge challenge in apparel because there's, there's no defined large. You know, the large is what we determine a large to be. You know, for, for us, we start textile first in design. So often what we do is we identify a end use that we want to hit. So this could be, you know, we want an ultralight, packable, but high performance rain jacket, for example. And then, so how do we go about that? And we generally start with textile first. And in our case, we often develop our own textiles. Hmm. And by textile, describe what that means exactly. Our fabrics. So before we even design the product, we are often diving into the fabric that will deliver the best performance in the end use. So if that's a, if we're intending to build a ultralight rain jacket, you know, we're starting with a textile that's going to meet those needs. It's going to be waterproof enough. It's going to be breathable enough. It's going to be supple enough, you know, meet our expectations on durability. And then from there, we build the garment kind of around that. And it's a different way to kind of look at product. But what it allows us to do is understand how that fabric, that textile is performing and what it can do, how much stretch we have in it, things like that. That really dictates the type of garment we can build. So our carbon jacket is kind of what I'm talking about here. The carbon jacket is a four-way stretch, waterproof, breathable jacket. It's three-layer, so it's got great durability. But um, because of how we designed it and built it, it packs up really small and it only weighs 15 ounces. And because we were able to build stretch throughout that garment, we can actually get into a much more fitted piece where historically historically a lot of wading jackets are be kind of bigger a little bit more boxier cut yeah a little bit more designed for you to move inside of it and we want to build garments that move with you and so it's a little bit different our stuff is doesn't have that big boxy feel it's definitely more fitted and that carries through our waders our jackets everything we do that's amazing yeah and you got me thinking when you're talking about the different, um, you know, kind of benefits, features, whatever of the products that, you know, Tim Rajeff was on. He was talking about the Echo Rods and I asked him, you know, how do you make this thing? Everybody talks about how durable the rods are. And he was, you know, straight up, he basically said, hey, there's in fly rods, you have three things you can have. You know, it's like, I think he said durability, um, you know, how light the rod is and how fast I think was the other thing. And he was like, you can't have all three. You got to pick two, you know, you could have one or two of the things, but you can't have all three. And like with Echo, they chose, you know, durability and I think, you know, the action, um, but it's not the lightest rod maybe, right? Or whatever. But do you find that with clothing too, where you can't have everything and you have to kind of choose, you know, like you want it light, you don't get it. How do you look at that? Yeah. All of this, whether it be fly rods and apparel, quite frankly, it's a bit of a physics problem, right? And as we talk about like waterproofness and breathability, that all comes into the, that as well. Um, One of the things that we have found over the years is the ability to bring stretch into the equation definitely adds durability because it get like in apparel, it gives instead of tears. So we're actually able to do very light, very durable and high performance. But some of that, that key is the ability where we can bring stretch into the equation. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's one of those things, like you said, I think of a lot of gear I've had in the past that was just stiff, didn't stretch at all. And you could see it. That's an easy place to break down. So on the waders, let's go to the waders. I want to talk about the hoodie I've been wearing too. But 
Talk about your waders because I think that's one of those things where, first of all, you know, you get a pair of waders. How long do you expect them to last? And then also, how do you keep them lasting? But how do you do? You guys also is stretch part of the waders, or talk about how you guys put that together because I know that's a, a big challenge and an important product. Yeah, so um, we don't implement stretch into our waders um, yet. I would say I think that's a great long term goal. Very challenging from a material standpoint, but what we really focused on with a waiter is we step back and said, how do we build a waiter that truly fits? And from day one, when we stepped into the concept of how we wanted to build our waiters, mobility was kind of number one. And we said, how do we get it away where we have a waiter that moves with you, not a waiter that's either stiff or boardy, but also big in the thigh and big in the hips and kind of designed for you to move inside of it. How do we build one that almost wears like a pair of pants? And that was our goal that we set out to do. And if you really take a look at our waders and the patterning and how they're built, you'll notice they're quite a bit different. And where we started was what's called with with a fourchette. And I'll try to describe this as <laughs> as quickly as yeah. I can. But a fourchette is, if you think about gloves, when we were kids, gloves were the, these flat, stiff things. Now we have these gloves that literally match the shape of your hand. And a lot of that design is done via a fourchette, which is a piece of material that goes down the outside edge and it shapes the glove to basically the shape of your hand and fingers allows for much better dexterity. We took that same concept and started with a fourchette down the side of our waiter, which basically shaped the waiter to your body. So we can control where the articulation is in your knee and in your hip. So now we can build a waiter that fits your body almost like a pair of pants. And then we build the rest mm -hmm. around it. So what we've been able to do is a pretty lean uh, chassis for the waiter. Our waiter does look, it looks more like a pair of pants, quite frankly, than a big bulky waiter. Um, but because we can control where all the articulation points are in the waiter, we're able to get this fitted waiter that gives you an incredible range of motion. Right. And that was really where we started in thinking about how we would make a product that was truly different and change the market. And then from there, we got into all, you know, all the materials. How do we build durability? How do we build puncture resistance? Um, and how do we maintain breathability? which was really important to us across our whole product line is our view is let's keep you dry to keep you warm. So breathability, whether it be in a jacket or in our waiter laminates, et cetera, is really important to us. Nice. Yeah. And I, I mentioned the waiters and I've worn all types of waiters. Um, you know, the ones I had this week, I won't mention the brand name, but everybody knows about them. They're a giant brand. And, um, but I think it's, you know, it just goes to the gear, right? I mean, all this gear isn't going to last forever. It's just, it's gear. It's going to wear out. But talk about that. Like maybe give a, a tip or two here. Like somebody has a pair of waders. Maybe they're a brand new pair. How do they make sure these things last? Well, first, how do they do that? And then how long would we expect them if they take good care of them uh, to last? Yeah. I mean, the longevity thing is a, it's always an interesting question because it really comes back to what are you doing with them, right? Right. You know, if you're fishing out of a drift boat, the vast majority of your time and getting out and waiting a bit. Waiters should last hundreds of days. Um, if you're running through blackberry bushes in Pennsylvania, I was just actually back in central Pennsylvania last weekend fishing, and there's a lot of really sticky stuff back there. The best thing you can do there is be careful and not just blast through blackberry bushes kind of thing. Um, but it truly depends on what you're doing, right? If yeah. Like a pair of waders for guys that are fishing out west in drift boats, they should last years. But, you know, the other thing on waiter care is a, it's an interesting topic. Um, in all technical gear, you know, keeping your gear clean helps it perform better. 
And I've seen this for years and years. Like people are afraid to wash like a $500 hard shell jacket. The reality is you should wash it. It'll perform better. It'll breathe better. The DWR will work better if it's clean. We're talking about jackets or, or waders. It doesn't really matter. But if you've got dirt and fish slime and gink, you know, ground into that textile, your breathability is coming way down. Um, the face textile is going to wet out. It doesn't mean your your jacket's going to leak, but it's going to become heavy and wet, which also severely inhibits breathability when when that happens. And then on the inside, you've got contamination from body oils and things like that. And by washing your garments and getting all that stuff out, reactivating your DWR, it's, it's just going to perform better. And we kind of feel the same way about waders, uh, which is an interesting one because I think very few people wash their waders. Yeah, exactly. I do. <laughs> I wash mine. Yeah. What do you wash? What is the typical? I mean, are you throwing them in just what do you wash them with and where are you washing them? Yeah, there's a couple things to be careful with here, which is why I think a lot of people don't recommend it. First and foremost, you have to put them in a front load. If you put them in a top load with that agitator, with that column in it, and it gets wrapped tight around that, that will do a lot of damage and or wreck your waders. We actually, as a test for garments and durability, we actually, there's a test called a, a killer wash. And essentially that is an old top load washing machine with that agitator. And you you run garments through it until they literally start falling apart. Oh, wow. Um, and it's brutal. You can, you can take a washing machine, take the dial off, make it a switch, and run a jacket or waders or anything you really want to test from a durability standpoint. You can run it for 20 hours, 30 hours. Oh, wow. Um, I can tell you when you get in around 40, things are coming apart. So you don't want to do that to your waders that are yours. <laughs> gotcha. So you got to go to the the laundromat, get a front. Yeah. Or your front load at home is fine. You know, I use a, I use a tech wash like from a Nick Wax or Granger's, but front load washing machine, in my personal opinion, is, is fine. Don't run them on a heavy duty cycle and also turn your waders inside out because you really want to wash the inside um, the most because that's what's connected to your skin and everything. And then, you know, a medium to light cycle. And I think That'll honestly help your waders over the long term. Uh, if you can take things like, you know, you don't want belts flopping around in there. You don't want harnesses. So if you can take that stuff off before you wash it, that's better. And then, you know, in terms of drying and what you want to do. So I like to retreat my stuff after I wash it. So I'll turn them right side out, spray them down with uh, a DWR treatment like a Revivex. And what, is DW, what, is, what does DWR stand for? Durable water repellent. The best way to describe it is when you have a brand new jacket, you'll know it beads water up really, really well. Oh, yeah. And over right. time, that will degrade a bit. Um, just as with dirt, this is kind of why I think it's best to wash your garments, keep them clean. But um, by washing it, you can reactivate that. But over time, it goes away. And I would prefer my gear to, you know, to bead water as best as possible. So after I wash it, I treat it. And then you can hang dry it or very carefully light dry in the dryer. You definitely don't want to put it on high heavy duty in a dryer for sure. Um, so ideally, you know, hang dry them. Yeah, hang dry them. Exactly. And do you recommend just on the daily, you go out there and you fish, you're fishing for a week um, or whatever. Do you recommend turning them inside out, drying them like that? Or is that necessary to do each day? Absolutely dry them out. You know, your body, you're perspiring all the time. So the inside of your waders are damp. Your feet for sure are damp. And the best thing you can do for longevity, right, is is keep your waders dry, hang them up, don't put them away wet, that kind of thing. That All of that is going to degrade the life of your waders. 
And that, that's the other reason to keep them clean, right? You put them away, damp, wet, you start, you know, in a worst case scenario, you start getting mildew and all that. And then, you know, then you have a, you have a, a real problem and quite frankly, a product that's going to fail. Yeah. The hoodie that I, well, I just got off a trip. I was up north in BC and, uh, you know, typically up there it's, you know, it can be cold, but it was really hot and we had a lot of sun. I wore that. Um, describe that. Do you remember what that shirt was? It's the hoodie that's got a mix of wool blend in it. Yeah. So we do a handful of things in Merino wool, which is kind of interesting given that we spend all of our time on being very technical and understanding the best technologies to give you a better day on the water. Merino wool does some things that synthetics don't. And especially when you get into these like ultra fine merinos. So we do a handful of insulation layers that are almost pure merino wool. They're like 95% ultra fine merino. And then we also did a sun hoodie, which is the piece you had, uh, which is called Thermo 150. And it is a very lightweight, ultra fine, 17 micron merino. It's about as fine as you can grade merino down uh, with a blend of nylon in that one. So it just kind of holds its shape. Unlike poly, it doesn't absorb odors and things like that. So it, it has just a little bit of nylon in there to help with wicking and keeping its shape, but it performs and behaves like pure merino wool, which means you can wear it for days on end. And That's what I noticed because I did wear it all week. <laughs> you know, we were there almost a week and I, all my other stuff, I was like, man, I was, I was having to wash, you know, all my other clothes because they were, yeah, the synthetic stuff, it was getting stinky. But yeah, I mean, that shirt, I didn't do anything. I literally just put it on. If it got hot out, I'd dip my sleeves in the water and it was just, it was a cool... And what's the, you know, the hoodie style where there's different styles now, but that one comes up and kind of covers your, almost up to your mouth, right? It covers your whole head. Are there, it seems like that's the go-to design now, right? For the sun. Yeah, that's our, our go-to design. Um, all of our, all of our sun hoodies, whether they be synthetic, we do some hybrid pieces, we do Merino, all of them have what we refer to as a scuba hood. And so yeah. rather than having kind of a, you know, across the chest. Ours sits all the way up on your chin. And the other thing about our hood is our hood is, uh, it's long. So if you want, you can make it sit all the way on the end of a bill of a hat. So now oh, you, exactly. you almost have this, if you want to have that much coverage, you know, with our stuff, it's an option. Um, you know, we feel pretty seriously that you know, we're a performance apparel company and that should go not only to waterproof, breathable or insulation. It also carries to what we do in sun. We put just as much thought into the textiles on a, you know, on a wet wading sun pant as we do in, into anything else we, we create. And, you know, protection from the sun is a big deal, especially some of us that have been around in this industry for a long time. And some of my friends and myself that, you know, were guiding 30 years ago, um, some of us weren't as smart as we should have been back then. We didn't know what we know today. No. And, you know, yeah. all element protection has become an important thing for us. So you'll see in our stuff, everything's 50 UPF or higher. And then we really focus on things like our hoods and stuff to give you as much protection as you can get. Amazing. Yeah, that's it. And I love that, that definitely the hood, the way it's for, again, it's form fitted, you know, you don't even notice it. It's, it's there, but it's great. Talk about, I mean, Merino wool is something we've heard a lot about for years. Just give us a quick little snippet on that. What is Merino and then what would be a non-Merino wool type of thing? Well, explain a little bit about why I like Merino in this space and why we kind of lean into it. So one of the things with merino wool is it's warm when wet. And by that, I mean, not that, you know, your products are leaking, but that, you know, you're always perspiring underneath this stuff. And especially in a, in a waiter, like we love merino wool as an underwaiter pant. A waiter is a really high humidity environment, right? Um, underneath there. And so 
when you have a, a material like merino wool that has this kind of warm, cozy feeling, even when it's slightly damp after you've been perspiring for hours on end, the reason it's able to do that is merino actually holds water in the fiber. So to get really technical, it can hold about 30% of its weight in moisture. And what that does is it kind of keeps that warm, cozy feeling, even when it gets a little damp. Where synthetics, you get what's called evaporative cooling, where it actually wicks really quickly. And specifically for like under a hard shell underneath waders, as a insulation layer, we love merino wool. And it just, it kind of performs it differently and in a way that you can't necessarily duplicate with synthetics. And in fishing, which is not a real high aerobic output activity, normally speaking, merino wool, that heavier weight merino wool is fantastic. Yeah, it's almost as you were describing that holding, I was almost thinking like almost like a wetsuit. I mean, not the same thing, but is that the same thing? Like where a wetsuit gets in there and it warms the water up? Is that kind of what the merino is doing? The thing with merino is it's holding the moisture in the fiber itself. So it's almost like absorbing it a bit like a sponge. And it's actually keeping it away from your body. So you don't feel, you actually don't feel wet, but it does keep that warmth property even as it, as it builds up moisture. Right, right. That's cool. And and describe, uh, you've got, you know, a number of other products. Maybe just give us a little snippet on the line. I know like the jackets, like the insulated, and I'm not sure if you guys have a puffy line, but talk about uh, maybe some of the other important items that you guys have coming that are out there now and then maybe are coming in the future. Yeah. Um, we kind of view our, uh, our product line as a, as a kit. So we build everything from basically from skin to shell. So next to skin, base layers, insulation pieces. So we do do a whole line of uh, fusion, which is our uh, our puffy jackets, and we have three different things that we do there. Yeah, and let's do that, Kevin. This is just got me thinking because we are going to be heading out to the Great Lakes in December oh, yeah. for Steelhead this year, and it's you know it could be cold. So let's line that up. If somebody right now is going on that trip and they're going to put together that nice setup from you, what would that look like? Start with the base layer. I would start with merino for sure. And then I would build into uh, our Thermo 350, which is, that's like a heavy fleeced merino wool. That's kind of like an expedition weight top, if people are familiar with that, but all done in merino rather than synthetic. And then from insulation, true insulation, uh, 3-2 Puffy, our Fusion 3-2. And that's, that's going to be our warmest insulation piece. And so that's like 90 grams of insulation in your core. Your sleeves and your arms are 60. So we kind of body mapped the insulation to more insulation where you need it and more mobility where you don't need it. And then from there, a hard shell over the top. You know, in that case, our hard shell kit uh, would be like our RS line. We do carbon and RS. And I refer to them as the bookends in both in waders and outerwear. Carbon is highly breathable, lightweight, packable. Our waders convertible. So it's really designed to wear as a waist high. So you get breathability. Really great for cold water, warm temperatures. I always think about like the Henry's fork, which it might be 95 degrees, but the water's 52 degrees and you're definitely not wet waiting. Right. Or guys are fishing spring creeks and things like that. To RS, which is more of our full featured um, bomber type product. So we don't, we don't do good, better, best kind of philosophy. We don't have a opening price point and a mid price point and a high end. Everything we do is the best product we can build for that intended end use. So a carbon waiter and RS waiter, neither is better. We get asked that all the time. What's your best waiter? And my response is, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. But if you're, uh, if you're going steelhead fishing in December where you could be very cold, absolutely RS would be our kind of our kit. That's kind of our, our bomber waiter. It's full zip. It has fleece lined hand warmer pockets. And then our RS jacket, which is kind of designed to kit with it, which has some 
kind of unique features like we do pass-through pockets on that that line up with your fleece line hand warmer in the waiter so when your hands get cold oh, nice. you're not just putting them into a jacket pocket you're actually putting them all the way in next to your body where you have your pre-warmed pockets to body temperature which you know if you get true michigan december weather you might really appreciate that yeah nice nice and and going back to the insulated, the, um, you know, the puffy, describe that. I mean, if you're wearing that and what happens if that thing gets wet, you stick your hand in the water. Is that a major issue? Because it seems like that's one of the things with it. Now, is this down or is this synthetic puff? It's synthetic. So everything we do is synthetic actually for that reason. We talked a lot about this because down's really fantastic as well. But synthetics have, have gotten so good from a performance perspective over the years. And when we talked about whether we would do down or not, one of the things we came to the conclusion is we are always around water. And, you know, in a scenario in December, well, we'll use your scenario you're walking into. Yep. You know, if you do fall in, down would be a less ideal option. <laughs> right. Than, than having synthetics that uh, fall on. Yeah. And I always think of the sleeping bag analogy because there was a time where I remember my first sleeping bag puffy was a synthetic you know, shout out to the cat's meow, you know, the North Face. And <laughs> I have one of those too. Yeah. I mean, it was this bag that said, I can't remember what it said, but it was like, it was a zero degree bag or something, but I always froze my ass off in that bag. And, you know, and then when I finally got a down bag, I was like, wow, I am never going back to a non-down. And to this day, I still buy down. I don't get synthetic, but that was a long time ago. So what you're saying is, and I'm sure the sleeping bag technology is maybe a little bit different, but what you're saying is the technology, just synthetics with the puff stuff now is way up than what it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and we've been able to do some pretty unique things there. So we've been able to develop stretch insulation. So a couple things happen when you do a puffy jacket. Um, they're either kind of completely locked up, which means they're coated fabrics, so the fibers, the down doesn't pull through. And those don't breathe really well. Um, and then we've, we've moved over the last you know, 10 years or less into active insulation, which you have a puffy, but that's fully breathable. We've been able to take that one step further and develop a, a full four-way stretch, breathable puffy jacket. So doesn't inhibit any range of motion when you're casting, when you're, you know, arm up, rowing a boat, you know, high stick imping, whatever you're doing. Our range of motion's really great in that piece because it's a four-way stretch puffy, but we're also been able to do fully breathable as well so you don't get wet and clammy underneath it now fully breathable this is on the on the the puff yeah oh wow yeah so it's a pretty unique product to have a four-way stretch breathable puffy and so breathes really well keeps you dry you don't perspire underneath it but it's also very warm and doesn't inhibit your range of motion at all um it's a really it's one of our favorite pieces actually it's i would say it's the it's the one piece that every single person that works at Squala wears all the time. Yeah, I was going to say that that is one of those items that you have to have some type of a nice puff, you know, puffy, because it just it's perfect, right? You're even you're around. It seems like I mean I know that with mine I wear a lot of you know uh, jackets that are just not synthetic, right? That are just natural down. And the nice thing is it seems like even in the in the summertime you could wear that stuff, right? In the right conditions, is that is that because of the breathability? Is that kind of what you're saying there? Is that it doesn't have to be? It's not just for a freezing cold day. Correct. What we found is when you get the breathable, air permeable puffy, you have a much larger range of temperatures that you're comfortable in. You know, yeah. uh, like our three two, we, we'll wear that when it's you know sixty degrees out, fifty five degrees out, but also we can wear it when it's below freezing as well and be totally comfortable in all scenarios. 
There you go. Nice. And on your site, I was noticing, I think you had some new uh, stuff for 2000, you know, 23 beyond. I mean, when you look ahead, are you always thinking, okay, how are we tweaking this current thing? Or do you have your set, these things are just dialed where you don't have to think about that? Or how do you you think about, you know, future years, new products? Yeah. I mean, I I think the DNA of our brand is a constant flow of evolution. So, and given that we we're kind of building product to intended end use as opposed to building product to like price points that will probably limit our line somewhat, right? I wouldn't expect to see a dozen waiters, you know, with a, with the squalor name on them. You know, today we're really kind of building, I refer to as the bookends. It's that kind of light, fast, super breathable, and then kind of our bomb proof, full feature set, durable side. Though our carbon waiters, the durability is fantastic. We've got lots of guides with well over a hundred days on them, but Given that's our kind of our DNA of how we look at product, for us, you probably won't see a huge product assortment because it's pretty specific to what we try to build. So there's still lots of holes for us to fill, but I would say we'll focus as much as on the evolution of what's that next generation of the carbon waiter and what it's supposed to do. So it's that cold water, you know, warm weather. How do we get better breathability? How do we get better puncture resistance? How do we, you know, how do we evolve the design based on just what we learn over years and years of use? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do you, if you are that person that bombs through the brambles and you're just diving into the crazy stuff, how do you make that waiter a little more durable so that, you know, that crazy person or the person that is really tough on their gear, how does that thing last a little bit longer? That's always the thing you're, I mean, that's part of the thing, right? Because I mean, I've had waiters definitely that I've done that and they've lasted Mm -hmm. and they haven't leaked. So, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's the model, the brand, or if it's just, um, I got lucky yeah. on one. You know what I mean? <laughs> do you think when you build these things, right, do you feel like all these waders that you make are basically identical, equal, or are there variations in the, you know what I mean? Like in the, the models, the lines and all that stuff. So I'd say in the same model, yeah, like our consistency should be uh, pretty good, right? It should be very consistent. There's a couple things that you chase in waders in particular. You know, durability kind of comes from two areas. It's either puncture resistance or tear resistance. Actually, those two things kind of fight each other a bit. To get great puncture resistance, you actually want, it really comes out of your face textile and how tight you get that weave. So the tighter the weave is, the harder it is to kind of poke through it. Right, but less breathability, right? Yeah, and also, yeah, as you get tighter, you'll lose a little bit of breathability. If you get too tight, you lose tear resistance. So, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of wreck this stuff and, one of them I kind of say is death by a thousand cuts, which is, you know, the guys that run through blackberry bushes and wild roses, things like that, where you, you just get a lot of pinpricks. And so we focus a lot on that. Yeah. How do you fix that? So you get, you go through some brambles and you get some pin things. Is that one? I know people talk to you turn inside out, spray alcohol on them. Is that the recommendation to find those holes if it happens or yeah. What do you tell somebody if they're kind of hard on their gear? Yeah. So if you get to tear real quick, it's almost easier to fix a tear that we can find because, and we can do a, a very permanent fix on that. The, you know, 50 pinholes down your shin is a lot tougher to fix because you literally have to coat it basically to repair it. Right. And so repair for us, we use water. There's a couple different ways to test a waiter. You can either use air and you can submerge your waiter. So you can kind of, if you know where the hole, you think you have a leak below your knee, you can fill them with air and you can submerge them in a tub and look for air bubbles. That will honestly probably show the smallest holes. The other way, um, we test with water. So our test for every new waiter that goes out the door is fully tested. It spends 12 minutes on one of our testing machines, which is 
fully filled with water. So we're testing with water to keep water out. But to test our waiter at home, I'd recommend filling them in a tub and looking for where the leak is. You can either do it with air and submerge it, or you can turn them inside out, fill them with water and look for where that leak is. And then I mark it with like an Expo marker. And then, you know, at home you can use, um, you know, like a tenacious tape or a repair kit from gear aid. Uh, if it's a tiny pinhole, you can just use aqua seal or one of the UV glues or, you know, in our case, we're happy to repair them too. And so if we fix them, we'll fix them with tape. So basically the, the seam tape that keeps the, the waiter waterproof, all the seams, we'll be able to patch out of seam tape and heat press it and it'll, it'll be a permanent, you know, for the life of the waiter kind of fix. Nice. So basically, yeah, I mean, maybe talk about that a little bit on your warranty. So if somebody buys one of your products, your waiters, whatever, and they have an issue, what does that look like? What do they do? What is the warranty? We kind of do two things. We do a warranty and a guarantee. So our guarantee is 30 days, love it or leave it. So run our waiters. And if they're not your favorite waiter you've ever worn, send them back to us. We feel really strongly that we're building a fantastic product. And then um, from a warranty standpoint, it's materials and workmanship for the life of the product. So seam tapes, things like that. Uh, Yeah, you get in a fight with a barbed wire fence, that one's on you. We're happy to fix it for you. But yeah, lifetime of the garment for for materials workmanship, so our textiles and our and our build. Wow! So this is this is literally a lifetime guarantee. If you get a pair of waders, you have a lifetime warranty. That yeah. You so I'd say lifetime of the garment. So oh yeah, you see interesting things come back in the waiter world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one that I've seen again on the I can't remember. I think this was the waders that I but you know I saw a seam on the foot like the neoprene boot, and I'm not sure you know exactly how that looks, but essentially the seam on the neoprene, um, I think the tape part of it was peeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't know. I mean, that's they're probably I wore wore them out. But again, is that something where you could easily fix that? Just glue it up, and is that something where you know do you do that yourself or do you send something like that in? Uh, on neoprene, I would for sure send it in. Neoprene's a bit tricky because it's soft. And in that scenario, we would just replace your full booty. And th- that was part of the uh, actually R&D of our waders. You know, we do know at some point in the life of every waiter, they're going to leak. It's just kind of a fact of, exactly. of life. Yeah, it's Gore-Tex, right? Or is it Gore-Tex? It's not Gore-Tex. I know that's Gore-Tex, but that's the, what would you call that? Because there's different names for that type of material, right? Yeah. So we use a different, Gore-Tex is a, is a different laminate material. Um, we use a PU based laminate, which doesn't really have, you know, Gore-Tex is a brand name. And Gore-Tex has become, it's like, what, what's that thing, right? When the brand becomes the, the name, like Kleenex sort of yeah, thing. Sure. People, yeah, yeah. I can't, but that's essentially what's happened, right? Gore, everybody just says Gore-Tex, but there's all these different brands that are maybe better than Gore-Tex that are out there. Yeah. There's multiple ways to get at waterproof and breathable, but the two main ones are what Gore-Tex does, um, which is a material called PTFE. And then... The other way to get at it is from a membrane perspective is uh, PU-based membrane. We use a PU membrane. We like PU because we can fine-tune breathability and waterproofness. So depending on end use, in certain scenarios, you'd want more breathability. Like everyone wants, thinks they want waterproof, and all of this is waterproof. But there's certain levels that you can get. You know, uh, If we're going to build a jacket for people that are you know, a guide in Alaska who's going to spend 100 days in the rain next summer, We've leaned them into like more of our RS jacket, which has a more waterproof, but slightly less breathable membrane. You don't get both. Mm, right. We use a more breathable membrane in our carbon jacket, but certainly can handle rain. Like I'll fish in the Olympic Peninsula, you know, in February and I wear a carbon jacket because I just love the breathability. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. And, 
you know, that's in your neighborhood and you know how wet yeah. that can be. So you're still getting pounded if you get one of those days where it's just, you're getting drilled for the whole day that the carbon, even though it's the lighter stretcher, it's still going to keep you dry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I just prefer the breathability. I tend to wear our lighter, you know, more breathable stuff, you know, steelhead fishing in BC. And when I get into winter steelhead, which is something I love to do, I, then I'll kind of step into our heavier gear. But for most of my year, I'm, I'm running our lighter weight stuff. That's right. And where are you at? So steelhead. So if I guess just changing it, looking at your, your fishing nowadays, are you kind of thinking like, Hey, I'm, I'm out there everywhere trying to hit everything. Are you, you know, diehard steelhead? What's that look like? I love steelhead fish. Um, if I had the time and could, could, could spend, you know, August 1st through October swinging for steelhead, I would, but yeah, honestly, I, I like it all because I think what gets me excited about fishing is like that pursuit and figuring it out. I spend more time chasing carp this summer in August than I did fishing for trout because those things will drive you crazy. Um, we have, uh, outside of the area I live, we have some really great carp fisheries. Um, but I do, I love, I love all of it. I like spring creek fishing. I like swinging. I actually, I fish trout's bay quite a bit. Oh, nice. And come spring, I love heading south and chasing saltwater stuff around. So. I was going to say, yeah, so saltwater too. And, and with your gear, is this, do you have, uh, you know, some of this gear is going to work in salt too? Are you thinking about saltwater? Yeah, absolutely. Our sun stuff, one of the things that we did that was really unique in our, our pant, our, our sole pant, uh, the material, the best way to describe it, it's kind of perforated. So it has small holes in it. Uh, you can feel a five mile an hour wind blow right through it. And so it makes it for a fantastic flats pan. And in our sun hoodies, we do a couple, you know, we do Merino like what you had, but we also do uh, a tropic hoodie, which will give you a little bit of the idea of our, how we think about product. We went all the way down to the fiber level before we made yarns and started working with a fiber that has a dry hand. It almost feels a bit like tissue paper. So in high heat, high humidity environments, standing on a flats boat in June in the Keys, it kind of keeps that dry feel to the garment. And it's very light. Oh, wow. It's an extremely light garment. And it's synthetic? It is a synthetic material, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How does that compare to, say, and I'm not sure, I think I might have asked you off air before about this, but like bamboo, because you have this bamboo, because it seems like I've worn some bamboo stuff that's really, I mean, it's got, I think there's disadvantages too, right? It probably, it gets really stretched out maybe, but the material itself seems to be nice. Do you guys have bamboo? And is that something, how do you compare that to your other stuff, your synthetics? Yeah, we don't do bamboo. Um, bamboo has a beautiful hand, you know, when you touch it, uh, which so a lot of people yeah. like it. It has some downfalls when it gets wet. Um, it doesn't like to dry really well. You know, we tend on our sun stuff, we tend to lean into poly. We use antimicrobials in them to keep them as scent free as possible. But we do a couple different things that are all application specific, just like the rest of our line, right? So we build a tropic hoodie that's very, very light, still maintains 50 UPF sun protection, but is a very light textile and has this, this very dry kind of feel to it, to a hybrid piece that's partially knit, partially stretch woven, doesn't absorb water at all. It's uh, in the arms and shoulders and things like that. So kind of a different end use, but we tend to use, unless it's the Merino stuff, we tend to use poly from almost all of it. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And what about boots? Do you guys do boots? We do not do boots yet. Yeah, I was going to say, is that, is that looking ahead? Is that something that you're thinking about? Some of these things, right? There's a whole line, like where do you, you know, all these things. How do you decide on what is the next big thing that you guys are going to jump into? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our goal is any place that we think we can bring, leverage our skill sets here as a team and bring our technology to give you a better day on the water, we're going to go toward, right? So if that, you know, if we find a way to, 
a better way to skin the cat in footwear. And we think we can deliver a perceivably different product, then we'll go down that road. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think footwear is interesting too because I've worn lots of different boots out there and it seems like, you know, I mean, some are a great fit, some are not, but I find myself now like, and maybe it's just older age, but you know, putting in like the uh, super feet right into my boots because it gives you a little, especially like me, I'm out there, I'm doing a lot of hiking, you know, I'm standing, especially if you're sitting there in a run, you know, you're, you're just standing on your feet a lot, but, um, no, that's really cool. I think that, uh, that would be great to see you guys come out with some other new gear looking ahead. Um, well, I guess anything else we're, we're missing here just on the line before we start to take this out of here, any other items that you want to highlight for folks that don't, aren't aware of Squala? Um, I think not really in particular from a product perspective. I think the, you know, I think the thing for people to, to look at with us is just kind of how we, we look at the space differently and how we've been able to implement, you know, really unique technologies, whether it be stretch or air permeability uh, or breathability in places that people haven't seen, just how that gives you a much more comfortable day on the water. Like I, I would say you're winning in technical apparel when you forget you have it on. That's when you know you did it right. And that's a lot of our goal here um, in everything we do is how do we build a jacket that you don't realize that you have a jacket on? Yeah, that's totally it. Yeah, when you forget about it. I mean, if you're if you're sitting there thinking about it, it goes for a lot of things, not only gear, but I, you know, even like podcasting, right? I mean, <laughs> if you're thinking about the audio quality, you're listening and you're like, oh my God, that's not a good thing, right? You don't, you want people to just be into the conversation. So, and I think that people can look at Sikia, right? I mean, that quality gear, you were there. I mean, I think that again, it's pretty, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but all the high quality stuff that came out of there was pretty amazing. And I, I'm guessing you're taking that, you know, you're bringing a lot of that over to what you do now. What was that transition like? Give us that little background. So you're at this, what looks like, I mean, a company you built into a massive company, and then you start this new thing. Was that a little scary? What was that like? Take us back there. For sure. I mean, it's always scary jumping in and doing a new thing. And especially the timing at which we did it. We did a lot of R&D right in the peak of COVID in 2020. Oh, wow. Um, and without the team that I'd had around me. So, you know, the early first couple of years of this business are all R&D for years before we came to market. And uh, a lot of that team that was with me, designers, developers, and my factory team that was getting this all going, we'd all been together for, you know, in some cases, almost 15 years. And so we all knew how to work together. We, you know, we developed a lot of really great product together over the years. And so part of that was, you know, we know what we're trying to do. We know where we're trying to get, and we just need to get there and figure out how to get there. And I had the team that I totally trusted to be able to get us there. You know, designers I'd worked with for years that understood what we were trying to do. And so, you know, I don't know that this would have happened, <laughs> quite frankly, without without that that crew. Exactly. This is not like a, just you jumping in there, solopreneur, like going for it. You got a whole thing behind you. Yeah. And a phenomenal team that, I mean, that's how we're able to do this. That's cool. And and what about, so just tell us on the, the Squala and the, you know, kind of the logo and stuff, because you know, I, I love that, but where are you kind of a nerdy bug guy or where does Squala that idea come to be? It didn't really come from being a nerdy bug guy. Um, though, you know, in Southwest Montana, where I live, uh, we are kind of in the heart of that, of the Squala fishing. But, you know, when we were searching for na- naming is always hard. Um, you never like whatever you come up with when you come up with it. And, right. But we came up with a handful of names and we kind of tested them with people that we knew, you know, really fishy type people. And, and we kind of go back to them. And Squala was one that um, we had come up with and it stuck with people. A lot of people don't know what a Squala stonefly is. Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of people don't realize it's a, it's a stonefly, right? Yeah, it is. And 
but we didn't really name the company after that. But there were some interesting things about it. You know, SKW is interesting in the English language, which is why I think it's sticky. It starts with squall, which is really interesting for a technical apparel company. Um, oh, right. Like a squall, yeah. like a, like a, a, a storm. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other side of the, for those that do chase the squall hatch, and for those that don't know, it's a pretty large stonefly that comes off only in a handful of rivers kind of in the Northern Rockies. Yeah, exactly. We don't have them. That's the thing is that we don't have uh, the squall hatch. Yeah. Or, you know, and like, yeah. It often comes off in the end of March and early April. And people don't realize like we're fishing big dry flies when you can find the hatch. How big are these guys compared to say a, uh, the giant Terranarsis, right? The big giant salmon fly. Oh uh, yeah. They're not that size. They're like a size 10, but when you've been fishing midges all winter, they look huge. <laughs> and when you, uh, if you get lucky enough to hit a great squall fishing day, the fish blast them. It's really fantastic. But you know, it's a hatch that a lot of people don't know about. And a lot of people who do know about it don't talk about it. And so there's a bit of like, if you know, you know, and we kind of like that right. for building like this new premium brand. We thought that was kind of a cool connection too. So hence Squala came to be. Right on, right on. Well, let's take it out of here real quick in our, our quick little rapid fire uh, round here. I got a few uh, a few quick ones and then we'll, we'll jump out. Um, and I, I like to start with always on the music and the podcasting because I love to throw something in the show notes. But are you, when you're on the road, are you listening to music? Are you listening to podcasts? What's that look like? You know what I do? It's, I've been on the road a lot over the last few weeks. Um, I would say I go 50-50. Okay, there you go. Perfect. So, if it, so give us, so if it's music, what is that uh, music you're throwing in there? Band, song, something that we could throw in the show notes? I could tell you yesterday, I was driving home yesterday. I had about a four-hour drive yesterday, and I split it between a fishing podcast, a kind of like a business digital marketing podcast, and ended with uh, Dave Matthews Band Radio on Sirius. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, right, right. Dave Matthews Radio. Yeah, yeah. He's got the, yeah, perfect. All right. We'll figure something out to throw in there. And then on the business podcast, give us uh, what, what was the the business podcast or what's the one you listen to? Um, I really like Scott Galloway. I think he calls it the Prof G. I've kind of followed Scott Galloway for years. Um, I oh, think cool. he's a great thought leader, especially in the digital space. Nice. Yeah. I haven't heard of him. I'll check that one out. Perfect. So we got a couple of items to throw in the, in the notes. What's your for rod? You've got only one rod that you could fish let's just take it i guess to trout uh, what's your go-to setup for locally around here if i'm fishing yeah. bigger rivers in southwest montana um i think my go-to would be a 691 sage x okay six and, and that's a and what is that a nine foot five weight or what's your what's your uh, weight length nine foot six with the fighting butt on it yeah nine foot six. Oh right yeah, with the fighting butt so this is something where it's interchangeable you could throw that in if you need it uh no it's permanently on okay yeah i yeah, gotcha all right and, uh, and we talked a lot about the travel. Give us your trip. So what's the next big thing that you haven't done yet that you'd like kind of that, you know, that bucket list trip? Uh, that I haven't done yet. Um, I've had to cancel Cuba twice. Oh, so I wow. think that's very much on the top of my list. So I've got that. And I think potentially next spring, I've never done a dedicated Atlantic salmon trip. And being this guy loves the swing flies. Yep, me too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I just you know, as I spend more and more time doing this, the experience is more important, right. Than anything else. Yep. And it's, I've not spent time in that, that part of Canada and, and uh, yeah. So you're thinking Canada, you're not thinking Norway, you're thinking definitely Canada. Yeah. Specifically the rest of is where I we're head. And then my next real trip, it sounds like, um, I'll be in Terrace here in uh, a little bit less than a month, I hope. So right back where you just were. Yep. Yep. That's an amazing, yeah, we were, 
we had a really cool experience, you know, definitely got a bunch of fish. And it, the one thing that blew me away about this, and I never would have thought this was going to be a really cool experience, but, um, you know, I hooked a fish that just basically tore me up. It was like, <laughs> oh, my God, right, you're, you're, you're freaking out, all this stuff. You finally get the thing in, and you're like, wow, that is a chrome bright coho salmon. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And it just blew me away because I never think of that. You know, we don't really have that same. You can't do that down here, find it. But, you know, I think that species is one that's very close. You know, there's nothing quite like steelhead level. But, you know, so I think that's the cool thing about terraces that, you know, especially we were fishing the main stem, Skeena. And, uh, and you have a chance at catching, at least when we were there. And if you go earlier, you might catch a king as well. So that's kind of the cool thing. But you guys are obviously focusing on steelhead. Um What's the biggest steelhead that you've uh, ever seen caught or have you caught? What's currently, what, are you looking for that 20 pounder? Yeah, I've cracked the 20 pound mark. Um, oh, nice. Actually, it's, this is pretty funny. It's going to tie back to uh, who you were just with. Oh, yeah. So um, in the Thompson, back when we could fish it and there were still fish in it, which is a real sad thing because, you know, arguably the greatest run of steelhead um, ever. I got one on a skated dry that oh, was over damn. 20. Um, and interestingly enough, I know you were just with Brian Niska Yep. and this was a long time ago, but I ran into Brian, uh, on the hotel run right below the Garuda Inn. There's a couple big boulders down there. And he said he had just had one boil on a dry and told me exactly where it was. And he said, let that thing rest and go back at it. <laughs> and sure enough, I did. And that's my biggest steelhead I've ever put my hands on. No way. <laughs> oh, that is a great story. So Brian, Brian hooked you up and you went down and, and did it. Yeah, just randomly, like we were talking while we were, he was walking up the river and we were coming down and that was, that was a really special place, which, you know, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever see that come back. And unfortunately, but, um, those fish were incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we were there, um, one of Brian's guides, she was downstream. I wasn't on, on the boat here, but they landed, I think it was, it was the 20 pounder. It was pretty close to it. It was a, I think it was a female, but so there's definitely still those fish are out there, right? There's still a few of those big ones. And I, I go back to my 13 years ago when I was there and I, we were on the Kispiox and, uh, I, we got skunked that day, but the guy landed, I think at the time was maybe close to the world record. Or it was, it was just crazy. I think it was like a 40 pound fish. So it just shows you, right? Steelhead fishing, right? I mean, we got skunked. This guy catches this mammoth, whatever it was, 30, 40 pound fish. But I think Atlantic salmon, that's what's cool about that species as well is that there's some big fish, right? You have a chance at potentially a 40 pound fish still. Is that the case where you're going? Are there still some really big Atlantic salmon? I don't think there's anything in that class. There might be, I mean, maybe, maybe there's one or two a year. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's much in that class in those Canadian, uh, rivers, but yep. Cool. Well, uh, and I'll just highlight Topher Brown. We had him on recently and had a bunch of great feedback. He really, he's got a book on Atlantic Sam, we're going to have him back on as well. And I've got some pretty big surprise steelhead guests that are coming back on it, um, to talk about some stuff too. So, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Um, Kevin, you know, if you have, um, you know, obviously we're going to be uh, staying in touch, working together here, moving ahead, but uh, we'll send everybody out to squallafishing.com if they have questions. And uh, and yeah, man, thanks for all the time today and, and shedding some light on all the gear. I'm excited to uh, to keep, uh, you know, testing your gear out and, and, you know, I'm a little rough on the gear, so I'll let you know how it all goes. But thanks for everything you do out there. Thank you. Thanks for the time. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.